Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Jim Heskett is the UPS Foundation Professor Emeritus at Harvard Business School and the author of his latest book, Win From Within, Build Organizational Culture for Competitive Advantage. He got his PhD at Stanford University. He's been a member of the faculty of Ohio State University, as well as president of Logistics Systems, Inc. Since 2000, he has authored a blog on Harvard Business School's Working Knowledge website. He has served as a consultant to companies in North America, Latin America, and Europe. Among his other publications are books including The Future Cycle, co-author of The Ownership Quotient, The Value Profit Chain, The Service Profit Chain, Corporate Culture and Performance, among many others, and numerous articles such as publications in Harvard Business Review, The Journal of Marketing, Sloan Management Review, California Management Review, and others. He's a member of the faculty of Harvard Business School since 1965, and he has at different times taught courses in marketing, business logistics, the management of service operations, business policy, and service management, general management, and the entrepreneurial manager, as well as served as senior associate dean in charge of academic programs. I absolutely loved his latest book, Win From Within, published by one of my publishers, Columbia University Press. And in this episode, he shares with us why companies with strong cultures often don't outperform their competition and what kind of strong culture you need to actually win. He shares lessons from successful cultural design efforts from companies like Microsoft, Uber, Southwest Airlines, and Ritz-Carlton. Some of the most important things you must do as a leader to transform the culture of your organization. Why the idea that culture takes a long time is actually false and that you can actually set the change in motion in six months and six steps you can take in a specific order to begin transforming the culture of your organization now. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Heskett. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It's great to have you. Good to be here. So I would like to open up with the same question I ask all of my guests, just to get us to know you a little bit more personally, if you can complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. You know that I'm interested in jazz music and that I used to regard myself as a terrific musician because I played professionally around the Midwest in a variety of bands back when we actually had dances, crystal balls hanging in the middle of ballrooms. So, What instrument did you play? I played woodwinds, particularly tenor sax. I used to think I was the best tenor sax man in the middle. Others had differences of opinion about that. That's great. And then second question I also ask all my guests, and most think a lot about strategy. I never get the same answer. So whatever your answer is, is perfect, which is what is your definition of strategy? Oh, wow. When I think of strategy, I think of basically how and when and maybe why we do things, but primarily how. I do it because most people's definition of strategy are so complex that you get lost in the weeds. And I'm more of a simple type that has to keep things understandable. So 
basically how we get things done, how we compete, and in particular, how we compete in a relative sense in terms of positioning ourselves against competition around business ideas of great importance. It doesn't just apply to the business world. It applies to public service and other organizations as well. Perfect. So pulling on that a little bit more, since you do spend a lot of your time thinking about culture, you mentioned this famous quote of Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for lunch. And we did have a guest here who was Jeff Smart. He was a student of Peter Drucker. And we talked a bit about that. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what the relationship is between strategy and culture? Sure. First of all, Kyan, I've never been able to verify the fact that Peter Drucker, I know. I've tried and I can't find that quote anywhere. Every time somebody confronts me with it, I have to go over to the corner and restrain myself because I think it's one of the most misguided things you could possibly say that culture eats strategy for lunch. I see culture and strategy in various ways. First of all, corporate culture can be an element of strategy in organizations around the world, every so often you find an organization that has centered its strategy around the culture of the organization. Organizations like Handelsbanken in Sweden, for example, that is organized around transparency, internal competition, and internal self-support. People support each other. If your performance is judged to be low last month and everybody knows it, and you know whose performance was really good, the first thing you do is to call that person and say, what are you guys doing? that we're not doing in order to prove what we're doing. It used to be that it was the culture of the old Bank One going all the way back before several mergers and acquisitions did away with that name in the United States. But it's an element of culture that is core to an organization's strategy. How do we get big better in order to compete more effectively? And the way we do it is by helping each other. New core steel. If a plant goes down, somebody gets on the phone, they call a buddy, or two at another steel mill within Nucor and say, we need five electricians we've got at our mini mill. We're down and they're telling us that we're going to be down for two weeks unless we can get some help. Can you send, have some people come over? Before you know it, they share talent in ways that are good for the organization, even though it may cost one of your competing subsidiary units some money in order to get people over there because it's a part of the company culture and it has become an effective part of the organization's strategy. Culture as an element of strategy, that's one way of thinking about it. Another way is that culture and strategy together can be a very effective way of competing. A third way of thinking about it is that culture enables an organization to manage change more easily. The relationship between culture and strategy is a very complex one, and it certainly is not described by the idea that culture each strategy for lunch save me. <laughs> yes, I can see that there are complex interconnections and feedbacks between culture and strategy. You have pointed out that sometimes a strategy can be working while the culture is eroding and maybe you don't see the impact yet. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. John Cotter and I did a study a long time ago about the impact of corporate culture on organization performance. We measured the relationship between culture and performance. And we were told by people in the industry that we had a small sample of organizations that had very strong cultures. 
we trotted off and we put together 10 years of operating data and did the statistical analysis. And we found that these companies had some of the best performance in the whole sample. And some of them had the worst performance. Now our study is on tenter hooks here. We're almost ready to scrap it. But we decided to go out and talk to these companies and find out what was going on. And what we found was that some of these companies with good performance and very poor culture were riding on a product innovation that had been introduced maybe five years earlier. And boy, they were milking it for everything they had, making good profit. Everybody in the industry thought their culture was terrible. So that ruins our hypothesis right, on right. another score. I went to some of the other losers. I went to Coors Brewing and found that at Coors Brewing, there was a not invented here culture, very strong. People in the industry said, boy, if you want a strong culture, go to Coors Brewing. They've got the strongest culture in the industry. And it wasn't performing. So I went out, talked to Peter Coors to try to find out what was going on. And yes, indeed, they did have a strong culture that almost denied any effort to find out what customers really wanted. They came out with a can that nobody could open. And they were so proud of their quality. But their idea of quality was the fact that it stopped with the beer. Didn't have anything to do with the can or the customer experience in drink or opening and or whatever. So it was a disaster, even though we were told that they had a very strong culture. So we really had to sort out these organizations and came to the conclusion that when we looked for cultures that were both strong and agile or adaptable, had great performance. If you were just strong, that was no guarantee of great performance at all for precisely some of the reasons that are implied by your question, I think. I am fascinating. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Now, so I can see you can create a culture that allows for change, allows the consideration of new types of customer shifts in the market. And so that allows us to adapt quickly. But there's a common belief that it takes a long time to shift culture itself. So is that true? That whole hypothesis is being put to the test, I think at the moment. And in organizations like Uber and Microsoft and some others in which friends and colleagues of mine have been involved, I think it is not so true. First of all, one of the reasons why cultures are perceived as being highly risky in terms of changing is because it's perceived that it takes a long time. The fact that it is perceived that it takes a long time means that many CEOs don't attempt it because they're not sure they're going to be around that long. And in any event, they need shorter term profit improvement. So the culture change effort gets put aside. Yeah, we really like to do it. One study led by Professor Graham at North Carolina, concluded with a big sample. 92% of the respondents said that their culture could be improved, not as good as it should be, right? 16% said they had done something about it. That leaves you with 76%, three out of every four organizations that, yet we really ought to do something, but we haven't. And the reason they haven't, I think, is that they perceive that it takes this long time and that, therefore, it's a high risk and we probably shouldn't undertake it. Those organizations that do undertake it and don't put a sense of urgency to it with the passion of the leader, such as happened at Microsoft. I mean, that was passionate leadership that got Microsoft 
to a culture change in nine months, maybe a little less. Most of that change took place. And the reason that that's so important is that organizations have attention deficit disorder. They can't concentrate on something like that for that amount of time when, in fact, our short-term profit pressures are requiring us to do other things. We're firefighting. The culture change effort gets put aside, and we end up seeing it sort of peter out at the end with nothing much being done about it, even though we might have another set of values, but people may not be aware of the values. So it's absolutely imperative that we change a culture in a relatively short period of time, much shorter than most people assume. Yeah. So I'm a CEO and I'm thinking I need to make an impact and culture is going to take longer than I'm going to be here, or it's going to take longer than the time we have. So we don't even try, or if we do try, we don't really put all of our passion into it. And so it's less effective. Yeah. We put it on the list of our agenda (laughs) along with a lot of other things, and it inevitably just sort of floats to the bottom. So then how quickly can culture change? I think you can make the basic changes that have to be sustained over a longer period of time. You can make those basic changes in six months. And that's what I attempted to describe in the book that I wrote, The Win From Within book. Yes. I love the book and the way that you zoom in on a few of the key levers because there are stories, there are incentives, there are structures, there are narratives, there are visions, there are so many things that we can look at. What are some of the top tools that a leader should turn to first in order to create this beginning of a six-month transformation? You have to make sure you've got the right people on the task, those that really share your passion. It helps if things aren't going too well, very frankly, because those people will inevitably be dissatisfied with the status quo and they'll help you more ardently in your effort. In the early session or two that you have with these people, you really ought to be watching people's expressions as well as what they're saying in order to make sure that everybody belongs on that bus and that you make sure that the people who are less enthusiastic or somewhat doubtful about the effort are given another job somewhere else in the organization, but not as part of this culture change effort. They may be perfectly good managers who just don't believe in the effort. And you can't have a non-believer on this team. With culture, you know, you're dealing with changes in values, but I think even more important, changes in behaviors. How we things around here. Yeah. Talk to me about that because I think that we normally default to cultures defined by values and you're saying it's by behavior. Yeah. I can give you all kinds of values that sound terrific. We value integrity in our organization. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean when I'm actually managing other people? What kinds of behaviors are relevant for a value of integrity? I can show you almost every organization has integrity as a value. Behaviors associated with that range from A to Z can mean anything. What does it mean? Many managers don't even know what it means. So it's the behaviors that define what those values really mean. And it's the responsibility then of top management, I think, to come up with an initial draft of what's needed in the change. You may circulate that through the entire organization, but leadership has to lead at this point and has to listen to the other people in the room. Now, there are a couple of other elements here, though. It's not just values and and behaviors, you've got to talk with this crew that you put together to make this change about how you're going to measure behaviors and 
I do about people that can't manage according to those behaviors, even though they may be making their numbers, but their regard among their organization is relatively low. Could you give us an example of a behavior and an example of how you might measure it, just so we can visualize it? One behavior would be where we provide time for refreshment in a high-intensity, high-pressure organization. Because companies with really effective cultures aren't necessarily the most pleasant places to work. They're high-pressure places. Even if they're ranked as best places to work, you say, right? Or even if they're ranked as best places to work. But the pressure in those organizations is somewhat different because it involves individuals who are putting pressure on themselves engaged in their jobs. Now, it's up to the leader to make sure that that pressure doesn't lead to burnout. So what does that leader have in place, whether it's the leader of a team or a division or what have you, what are they doing to relieve the pressure of the job? You can measure that. For example, what's their policy on the weekend use of email or Zoom? And are they adhering to it? You can measure it because if somebody's making their numbers by driving their people to the point of burnout, that person probably doesn't understand what the intent of the culture really is. I gotcha. I have so many questions and I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. One of my favorite parts of the book is where you lay out a sequence of something like 15 or 16 different phases of an effective, accelerated culture transformation. I know we can't go through all of them, but could you give them to us in like four buckets or something like that, just to give readers a sense? Like, I think you talk about like hiring, to start with hiring the right people, getting the right people off the bus, and what would be the Cliff Notes version? And then we certainly will encourage our listeners to go and find this book. And on page 154 of the book is where it begins. I've got the book here, but I'll give you the actual effort to go to the book. I think of this whole process in several buckets, as you call them. First of all, you've got this organizational bucket where you make sure you've got the right people involved in the effort. And then you've got the second bucket, which has to do with actually formulating the go-to culture that you're thinking about. It probably involves some kind of a from-to discussion. We were at Microsoft. We did honor at one point the smartest guy in the room. Now we're going to honor the people who share ideas, for example. So you do your from two, that's the second bucket. Now it's time to actually implement. And so I can implement through some kind of a cascading effort down into the organization after I've already polled the organization to ask them what they think of this new set of values and behaviors and giving them a voice in either approving or disapproving of what your top management team has come up with. This third process is one of implementation. The fourth is just as important. And part of the implementation that I think is important is that you have a team with primary responsibility for making sure that we're on schedule, that the feeling of urgency is important, because after all, we're going to do this in a short period of time. This is the attention span of the organization that we're talking about. Is that the top leadership team that should be on that team or who? Not necessarily. It's believers who are you know, reasonably highly regarded at various levels in the organization who may make up this team whose primary responsibility is to get this culture in place at lower levels, all the while with leadership that is demonstrating by its actions and its voice communications and the like, the importance of what this team is doing. And then finally, you've got to have some mechanism for sustaining things. And I've suggested several. First of all, you've got to measure. That means really going back to how we are providing performance measurement and review because 
us, but probably not doing it in a way that supports the new culture. And then making sure that it's being administered, used in management, and making sure that those people who don't score well on these performance measures related to the new culture either get some counseling or get outplaced so that you don't have this drag on the culture. An interesting thing I found, Cayenne, is that we all know that managers are very reluctant to do this. They all say, I wish I had gotten rid of this person six months ago and so forth. But I was just worried about the impact that it would have on the organization. Well, here's what the impact is on the organization that we have found in 90% of the cases. This is a high producer we're talking about that we're letting go, right? His or her associates are relieved that that person is gone. And as a group, performance goes up, including the performance of the person who is no longer part of the group. So performance will go up. And consequently, you're right in wishing that you had let that person go six months ago. And then at a very personal level, I think maybe the last number 16 on the list is kind of the personal thing you do as a leader in asking yourself every time you make an important decision, what will be the impact on the organization's culture? Is it in line with the values and the behaviors that we all agreed on? And if not, how do we have to structure this decision? And it may very well be something related to the organization's strategy. We have to tweak it to make sure that it is perceived as being part of the organization's culture. One last example of what happens do that. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo, a one bank company. We're all in it together and so forth. And then somebody comes along and creates an incentive for customers to add services to their account, which makes sense because it includes the bank's economics. And then creating such onerous goals that people are cheating and creating false accounts, since we all know the story. A prime example of an organization in which somebody made a decision without thinking about that organization's culture. That's great. Thank you. That's real gold. Thank you for sharing that with us. And again, I've got so much more to talk about, but we've reached the top of our time with you. And I know you're a very busy man. Where can people follow you, connect with you, learn from you? In addition to getting your book, anything else you'd recommend? Anybody who wants to communicate, my email address is jhesket at hbs.edu or through the publisher of the book, the Columbia University Press. I'm sure they'll get it to me. Well, Jim, thank you so much for the work that you've done, the work that you do and share that with us here. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kahan. Thanks for having me. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.